Nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at the markets and investment opportunities. My guests are Barron Senior Writer Nick Jasinski and Ted Bridges, Co-Chairman and CEO of Bridges Trust in Omaha. Ted is one of the 130 money managers who responded to our latest big money poll of professional investors. We posted the results of this survey on barrons.com late last week and in the magazine, and we'll use big money as the jumping off point today for a look at the markets. Ted is also a Berkshire Hathaway investor, and he'll be meeting up with Nick ahead of Berkshire's annual meeting on Saturday, May 6th in Omaha. Boy, do I wish I could be there too. We'll also spend some time today discussing lessons from Warren Buffett and Berkshire and the outlook for the company. Welcome, Nick and Ted, and thanks for joining me on Barron's Live today. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Ted. Hi, Nick. Hi, Lauren. It's great to be here. Wonderful to have you. So I want to start with Nick today. Nick, you wrote the story that accompanied our latest big money poll. It gauges investor sentiment about the markets, the economy, and investing. So let's start with a look at some of the poll's key findings. Tell me what you consider to be the highlights of the spring big money poll. Sure. So I'd say the the biggest takeaway actually really fits with what the market has been doing lately, which has been this eerily quiet, basically going sideways market, which to me is it's a sign of uncertainty about what comes next. It's a a lack of conviction in the market going in either direction overall. Um, And that really matches the biggest takeaway from the big money poll this spring, where um, just to give you some numbers, 36% of the investors we surveyed, um, this this poll ended, it was mostly in April. Um, They described themselves as bullish on the outlook for stocks over the next year. Another 36% say that they are neutral and the remaining 28% say that they're bearish. So it's close to one third each that's say bullish, neutral, or bearish. Very uh, rare to see that. Yeah, we do this in all the years of big money. We do the survey twice a year. We've been doing that for for decades, and generally there is some consensus, but not this time around. Um, and I think that that investors disagree about what happens with inflation from here. How does the Federal Reserve react to that? Um, what will be the impact on the economy based on what the Fed does? How does that affect corporate earnings? So there's just there's there's a wide range of credible forecasts from here and a lot of conditionals and variables that are interconnected and make for overall a rather cloudy crystal ball ball. Um, it's just it's hard to have a strong view on the big picture, the, the destination, if you will, without knowing where each of those steps along the way, um, how that, how those will shake out. <laughs> and adding to that, that's it's been a pretty decent rally in both stocks and bonds since the start of this year. So that's made valuations a little less attractive. Um, and there's just, there's no easy answer. There's no fat pitch right now. A um, couple other quick highlights, um, technology, energy, and healthcare are poll respondents' favorite sectors for the year ahead in the stock market. Um, Europe and emerging markets are the best places outside the US to invest is what they say. Um, and then one other big takeaway is that bonds have a lot more fans than they have had in a long time in, in this survey. 
um, which is probably, it's no surprise to our listeners, I'm sure that's a function of the higher yields available on, on bonds these days. Um, in fact, the majority of managers we surveyed expect bonds to outperform stocks in 2023. Um, there are some, under the surface, there are some meaningful differences in managers' willingness to take on credit risk, that a lot of that depends on their view if we're going into a recession or not. Um, also, when to begin extending duration as the Fed wraps up its, its uh, hiking campaign. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about bonds a little more later in the call. Those we, most, we most certainly will. So I want to ask Ted, thank you for that summary, Nick, and for a great story. I want to ask Ted why you called yourself bullish about the, mar the market's prospects over the next 12 months. You're in the, you're in the one third of managers who are in the bullish camp. What informs that outlook? Uh, Lauren, I, I would say um, we're constructive. We don't uh, have that category. <laughs> yeah, okay. So if we want to put a label of bullish on it, we can do that. Okay. Um, and I would say more than anything else, that would be predicated on the idea that while there are a lot of salient risks that investors need to grapple with, and I think Nick did a really good job of kind of outlining all of the different things that sort of need to come together as someone pieces together their outlook, um, we'd be sort of of the mind that most of those risks are pretty well known and therefore likely discounted to some degree uh, currently in securities prices. And it just seems to us that there's maybe more room at the margin for things to be not as bad as might be currently expected. Um, and if you thought about it over the period of the next year or two, um, as time goes by, to us, it seems more likely that people would begin to look across the valley of an economic slowdown or, or a recession that might be uh, being brought on by the Fed's you know, kind of aggressive moves last year and and people starting to think about, well, what does it look like as the economy eventually recovers? So, um, you know, I think we're constructive. You can call it bullish. Um, but I guess that's probably in large part predicated on our idea that we're looking across the valley and, and thinking about what valuations for companies might be three, four, five, six years out. So valuation is actually what I wanted to talk about. The S&P is trading for about 18 times this year's expected earnings. That's far from cheap, but it's certainly a lot cheaper than it was at the highs back in 2021. So individual stocks are a different matter, but how do you assess the market's valuation at this point? So Lauren, we'd, we'd look at it and say, um, you know, the S&P PE, it, it's an aggregation of a lot of different types of companies, but it does, I think, give us a generally a decent proxy for how equities are valued. And we think it's one of the few times where the market is actually pretty close to fair value as we would assess it. Uh, and fair value to us would be defined as the valuation that um, sort of, you know, is, is, is reasonable from the standpoint of what you might be getting now from corporate earnings and likely to get on a go forward basis. And, and, and what we might do is invert that PE and um, take 18, take the inversion of it. Maybe that's a five or 6% earnings yield. And we would probably expect that that cash flows would grow at five, six, seven percent uh, over the next decade. Um, and then, you know, maybe you get a dividend yield of one or two percent. That gets us to sort of an expected total return of, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten percent, uh, which isn't far off from historical returns for equities. And if we compare that to the 10 year treasury at four, 
that spread seems to be pretty close to fair value as well. So, um, so again, different companies underneath that could be variant, but as a proxy for the overall environment, uh, we think the S&P is probably pretty close to fair value. I mean, could we make a case for 19 or 20? Could we make a case for 16 or 17 times earnings? We sure could. We don't think 18 is far off at a three and a half or 4% 10 year yield. And I think after the year we had in the market last year, six, seven, eight, nine percent return would be terrific. I think a lot of people would sign up for that. Yes, absolutely. Tell me about the companies you like to own. So, um, you know, I think um, from an investment standpoint, um, our firm really tries to be long term uh, as we think about allocating client capital. And the reason we think a long-term horizon in equities is important is because in the short run, um, stock prices are so widely variant or so widely divergent uh, relative to what a fair appraisal of a business's really um, intrinsic value might be. So, um, so based on that, uh, the types of companies that we seek would be companies that have um, very high quality, uh, that would have durable competitive advantage in other words, their business model is such that they compete very, very well, very successfully in the markets in which they uh, in which they they seek to do business. We look for companies that can grow. In other words, companies that can leverage that durable competitive advantage uh, to drive what we would consider to be above average uh, growth in revenues or free cash flow or dividends or earnings. And then we pay a lot attention to valuation, right? We we want to make sure that what we're paying for those businesses makes sense given their quality, given their competitive advantage, given their opportunities to grow. We're going to talk about some of those companies as the call goes on and as we get into some of the earnings for this week. So looking at the bond market, which which Nick took a peek at early in the conversation, how are you positioned in the fixed income portions of your portfolios? So historically, um, coming out of the 2008-9 sort of uh, real estate credit debacle, um, you know, as the Fed sort of coming out the other side of that um, pursued very accommodative, expansive monetary policy, QE, um, the effect on that was to really push um, yields down. And I think that the tenure first got below 2% in maybe 2011. And at that point in time, you know, we kind of looked at it and we said, you know, if we buy a 10-year treasury, uh, or a 10-year corporate, and we get you know one and a half to two and a half percent, we may not even cover the cost of inflation. So, um, so the response we had from an asset allocation standpoint was to push strongly more. You know, we've always been kind of an equity-oriented firm, but we push more strongly uh, in the direction of equities. But where we did retain fixed income, we really, really, really shortened up duration um, because we just felt the risk was really. Um, for higher interest rates and, and lower bond prices. And I think that asset allocation worked out really well, uh, but our bond returns were, were not much, right? Because we had short duration portfolios in a low interest rate environment. Uh, that really was painful during the last throes of the lower interest rate environment going into the pandemic. But in the last couple of years, um, I think that's that's been helpful. And um um, and now as rates have really perked up in 22 and 23, we've been more comfortable pushing duration back out. Um, it's a little bit of 
trying to chase a moving target. Uh, but whereas we might have been a couple year duration, we're maybe pushing toward three or four year uh, duration in bond portfolios, trying to lock in better nominal, better um, real yields than we've had in some period of time. I was just thinking of that phrase, lock in. Yep. So I can't risk asking you, what is your economic outlook? It's half the world thinks a recession is around the corner. Some people are expecting a soft landing. Some see none of the above. What do you see? Um, with the caveat that much of what we do is not predicated on like correctly getting the uh, the economic macro thing right, at least in the short run, um, we think we think that we think that the Fed's really strong moves higher on rates in 22 will be successful. And if you kind of mark CPI from a year, year and a half ago to today, it's not at a level that people want it to be. Certainly not what the Fed wants it to be but progress has been made. And we think that it is likely that more things will be the same as they were prior to the pandemic, because this because the inflation that we have is really pandemic related. But for the pandemic, inflation would probably still be in the high ones, low twos, mid twos. We think more things are the same, with the one caveat being labor costs are probably going to prove to be more sticky than they were. That is something that we think may have been structurally changed uh, through the pandemic and could be a source of higher um, inflation, which means the Fed may have to continue to raise a little bit more and it may be reluctant to cut rates, even if toward the back half of 23, it looks like the economy is starting to roll over. So that's sort of our economic outlook. Um, is it possible to sort of say the answer lies between soft landing and hard landing? That's, I don't think it's going to be a hard landing. I think there's enough liquidity in the system and we have enough people still employed um, that I, I don't think it ends up being a really hard recession. Um, but I do think there's room for corporate earnings to come down. And I think there is room for several quarters where economic growth really flattens out and could be actually negative on a year-over-year -year basis. That sounds like a decent forecast to me. We'll see how it plays out. We, we shall see. All right, let's take a look at this week's corporate earnings. I'm going to turn to Nick for this. Nick, First Republic reports on Monday night. This is the bank that almost joined Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in the failure column, but didn't. What will matter when the bank reports first quarter earnings? What are you listening uh, yeah, that's that's Monday evening. This will be an interesting one. Um, like you mentioned, this First Republic got hit by a huge outflow of deposits in March following the, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, then a consortium of bigger banks put $30 billion in to help shore it up. The stock is down about 90% year to date. Um, so naturally, investors will be taking a close look at the bank's deposit balance at the end of the first quarter. Um, at the end of the fourth quarter, so before all the banking turmoil began, that stood at $176 billion. I really wonder what it'll be three months later. Um, that's the immediate crisis at, at First Republic. Uh, the, the bigger long-term question, I think, will be just how profitable the bank can continue to be going forward. Um, if it's forced to replace deposits that, it was, that were in checking and savings accounts, paying practically nothing on, with much higher cost funding sources. I mean, borrowing from the Federal Reserve, the overnight rate is four and three quarters percent these days. Um, that's a lot higher than, than any bank you can find paying on interest or in, in interest on a checking or savings account. Um, 
So the, I'd say the, the immediate liquidity crisis for First Republic Bank seems to be over, um, but arguably the hit to profits is only just beginning. And I think the main question for investors is, is that fairly discounted by the stock being down 90% this year, um, trading at prices that yeah. hasn't for, for a long time? I think that's, that's the question. That's the question, yeah. Do the, does the bank owe back the money that the bigger banks piled into it? Yeah, I mean it's it's a deposit, so it's a liability on the balance sheet, the same mm -hmm. way that, that any uh, any any customers' uh, deposits will be. Okay, it's gonna it's gonna be an interesting few years as this plays out. So Visa and Mastercard are also reporting this week, obviously on on much firmer ground. Visa reports on Tuesday, Mastercard reports on Thursday. What's the outlook for these companies? Yeah, it's a, I guess they're they're both financials, but it's a very different story here. Mm -hmm. Payment processing is arguably the, I mean, it's the, probably the best big business out there. Um, the net income margin for Visa is like 55%. Um, there's steady growth pretty much no matter what is going on in the world around them. Um, and that's just, there's these long-term trends. It's by virtue of spending moving from cash to plastic and e-commerce online, um, especially fast growth in emerging markets these days. Um, I mean, also the, the business model is a percentage of each transaction process. So inflation actually helps their revenues. Higher prices mean more revenue for Visa and MasterCard. Um, and there are economies of scale, which means that it, basically it, it doesn't cost Visa or MasterCard anymore to process one more transaction on a network that already exists. So earnings grow faster than revenues. Um, and we'll probably hear some more from management about new initiatives, especially Visa's is very excited about their business. business peer-to-peer -peer payment processing. Um, so th th I would say there isn't much to be worried about as far as, as the quarter is concerned for Visa or MasterCard. Um, I think what will be more interesting for, for most investors, not just Visa and MasterCard shareholders, but, but it's what management has to say about how retail spending and consumer demand is progressing and what they expect to come next. Um, I think, as, as we've discussed, everyone is on the lookout for are we going into a recession or not? Um, is the consumer solid or is the spending decreasing? Um, Visa and MasterCard have perhaps a better real-time view of the behavior and health of the American and than any other companies do. Um, so that I think that the results will be interesting, not just to their own shareholders, but to other investors as well. Ken, you own both of these companies. What are your thoughts here? Uh, we do own both companies in, in size and have for many, many years. Um, I, I think Nick did a great job of sort of outlining, you know, sort of the setup um, for the quarter. And I, I think the caveat that we would have around Visa and MasterCard, um, there'd be two. I think, you know, there's, there's sort of the existential question of um, the existing payment networks, as, as Nick noted, um, work very efficiently. They tend to drive costs down. Um, and you know you can you can do incremental business without having to make you know a lot of capital investment on them, and I think that's why those two companies carry fairly high um, valuations. But I think the risk is um, fintech innovation. It's such an attractive business by its very definition. It's going to draw competition, and um, I think the response of Visa and MasterCard has, has, has been historically to try and get out in front of it or acquire technologies that they believe um, you know, could be both helpful to their business and or uh, sort of de-risk their business by taking a potential competitor off the table. Um, the second risk um, really relates more to the, the stocks themselves. Um, by 
by their position as kind of a duopoly or oligopoly, or you know, someone might say they each have a monopoly. Um, they're very long duration businesses. Um, much of their current valuation is captured in the future cash flows many years down the road. As such, um, if interest rates were to you know kind of go back up, you know, the tenure goes back to four, four and a quarter, four and a half, or five, their stock prices in the short run. I think are very sensitive to changes in interest rates. But I think Nick, Nick said it very well. They're exceptional franchises. They're very strong platforms. Um, and we've, we've done well to hold them uh, for a long period of time. And we expect uh, that we will own them um, for a long time into the future. Well said. So moving on, it's going to be a very big week for tech stocks. We're going to hear from all, almost all of the big ones. Nick, take us through the calendar and the stocks and Wall Street's expectations for these companies. We'll start with Alphabet, which reports on Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, Al Alphabet and Microsoft both on Tuesday, then Meta platforms on Wednesday, and Amazon on Thursday. Um, so it is a big week for, for big tech. Um, yeah, with Alphabet, um, all, all the headlines lately have been about the AI large language models, like those used in ChatGPT and other chatbots. Um, and this debate over whether that'll be a threat to Google search um, market share and, and competitiveness. Um, Microsoft did beat Google to market with their search integrated uh, AI tools with Bing. Um, although Google does have its own answer now, it's called Bard um, and that's live. Um, that, that's more of the long-term debate over Google's future market share and competitiveness. Um, I'd be willing to wager that Google is not just gonna take the competition sitting down, but they're that the investor fears about losing share in search um, or seeing at least seeing margins come down as a result of competition are probably overblown. Um, I'm interested in Ted's thoughts. I think time will tell. Um, in the near term, for, for the quarter that they're reporting, it's really more about two things. Um, one is advertising demand and the trend there. Um, and then the second is the cost-cutting initiatives that, that Alphabet has been doing. Those include a, a layoff of, um, I forget, I think around 12,000 employees. Um, a reduction in the real estate footprint and some other things. I don't believe that those will be in the first quarter numbers. Actually, more likely there will be some one-time severance charges and the like, which may actually increase Alphabet's costs in the reported period, um, but they may take some additional color on operating expenses going forward and um, what that does to margins. Um, as for the advertising, um, if there's an economic slowdown underway, then companies will spend less on marketing um, and Alphabet, Meta, and Amazon, those three tech giants today combined are the vast majority of the ad market. Um, so the, the, all three of those will be under scrutiny for trends in advertising. Um, you should also watch for, uh, for uh, how YouTube is doing at Alphabet. Until pretty recently, that was a big driver for the company, but growth has stalled there lately. Um, and then Google Cloud, which is it's far behind Amazon's AWS and Microsoft Azure, and still isn't profitable. Um, so there, there are a lot of questions for Alphabet. Um, let me just see right now. The stock is around 20 times this year's expected earnings, um, 17 times next year's versus its historical average around 28 times. So, so there's certainly some slower growth priced into the stock these days. Um, that's either appropriate given the outlook or it's an opportunity if you, if you think that growth will accelerate again. Um, I'll just go quickly through the others. Meta on Wednesday will be similar to, to Alphabet. The things to, to watch are the advertising trends and impact of cost cutting. Um, Microsoft is on Tuesday as well. I think that'll be all about cloud growth um, and management. It would be nice if management would actually quantify what they see as the opportunity with their AI initiatives. 
Um, as you recall, they, they just put $10 billion into OpenAI, which is the company behind ChatGPT. Um, they've been sort of lacking in their in their explanation of what they see as the return on that investment. Um, Amazon is going to be on Thursday evening. Um, there, I think the number to watch will be growth at AWS. That's the cloud computing division that's been slowing for several quarters. Um, so investors want to either see that improve or at least get some commentary from management that suggests that a bottom is is near. I think those are the main things. That's that's more important than the e-commerce in the quarter, probably. All right, Ken, I'm going to ask you for your two cents on some of these companies. I want to go quickly through this because we want to get to Berkshire and we're getting a lot of listener questions. But you are a big holder of Amazon and Microsoft. I saw that you recently sold, on the other hand, Meta and NVIDIA. So Amazon and Microsoft, what's the case for owning these stocks now? So, Alphabet too, I should add. Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of quickly go through all three. And I'll, I'll take Alphabet first since Nick just commented on it. Um, and he, he made a really interesting point. Uh, Alphabet is traded at you know mid to high 20s valuations. Currently, it is at 20 times earnings. And I look at that both from an absolute and a relative basis. Uh, on an absolute basis, um, consensus street estimates are for 15% long-term growth. Even if you said that was too optimistic, let's say it's only 10 or 12% growth, which would be a pretty significant um, reduction. Uh, that compares to the S&P at probably five, six, seven percent long-term growth. So you're basically with Alphabet uh, owning a company that has probably two X plus uh, the long-term growth of the market as a whole, and you're paying a 10% premium uh, to own that. So that math I think works pretty well. From an actual, how does that really work in in the real-world standpoint? Uh, I think Google drives about $70 billion a year of free cash flow, um, and that's growing pretty consistently over time. And if you think about the directions that management could go there to drive value, they can take that free cash flow and invest it back in the business to maybe play catch up in AI. Um, they could reduce the amount of sort of VC venture capital. They used to call them moonshots, big bets, um, and sort of uh, increase free cash flow by making fewer venture capital type bets. Uh, they can continue to cut costs. I think Nick mentioned that. Uh, and then they have plenty of room to buy back shares. And if with the valuation at 20 times, they're probably more likely to buy shares back uh, than they would at 25 or 30 times. So I, I think there's a lot of ways to win with Alphabet over the next five or 10 years. And they have an absolute hammerlock on online advertising, which in a difficult environment for the economy, probably is something that actually, um, you know, advertisers want to see because they they really need to know that there's targeting uh, of the ad, ad spend that they're doing. Um, we we very much like Microsoft. AW, or Microsoft has a lot of ways to win as well. I think Amazon is the more interesting stock again mm -hmm. because it's come down so significantly from a valuation standpoint um, and. Um, the, the risk there, though, is, and Nick touched on it, um, AWS has been absolutely um, toward growth, high 20s, low 30s. I think the street is concerned as that growth rate slows. We would be less concerned about it because a 20% growth would still be phenomenal. Um, but the issue there is Amazon has used the free cash flow generated by AWS to, to, to reinvest in the logistics side of the business. Uh, to the extent there's too much degradation of growth, uh, I think people might be concerned. But we think Amazon, again, for what you're likely to get for the next decade, 
is pretty in, inexpensively valued. Um, yes, we have trimmed Meta and NVIDIA over the last quarter uh, because both stocks have just been tremendous uh, over the last 90 days. I think we have more of an issue around Meta from a longer term standpoint, although it looks like management's starting to trim back expenses. Um, uh, we think NVIDIA is incredibly well positioned. Uh, we still own it. We just own less of it because the stock has really had a strong run. We think from a valuation standpoint, it was a little bit more difficult to make the case to own it in the full position. That's pretty much what I expected you to say, given the rallies in those stocks. So let's spend a minute on Berkshire, then we'll go to listener questions. You read the Berkshire Annual Report, Ted, as did Nick and I. What leapt out at you and what do you want to hear from Warren Buffett at the annual meeting? Um, I thought the most interesting part of the of this year's shareholder letter was um, Buffett went on a, a discussion of the power of dividends with respect to investing. And um, our firm runs a strategy that does look at companies or emphasizes companies that have very persistent and well above average dividend growth. I thought Buffett's comments along that were spot on. Uh, because our sense is that over the long run, stock price does tend to correlate pretty well with growth in dividends. And it isn't that the yield changes all that much, uh, but if you look at a company like a Costco or a Home Depot, um, Union Pacific, there's a lot of really good businesses that are pretty persistent dividend growth companies and total return ends up being really good. Yield stays about the same, but the stock price follows the dividend growth and investors get nice cash flow. Uh, increases typically well above inflation. But there's irony there because Berkshire itself um, doesn't pay a dividend. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't pay a dividend. But I think I think Buffett's logic there is he feels he can deploy free cash flow more effectively before paying taxes. And I think he doesn't want to send the cash out to shareholders, have them um, pay tax on it and then be faced with what do they do on a reinvestment standpoint. But I really, really liked Buffett's um, uh, commentary around the power of dividend growth investing. He made the point like our Coca-Cola position now has like north of a 50% yield against our original cost, you know, and growing like 7, 8, 10% a year. That's, that's very, very powerful. Um, what I hope to hear at the annual meeting um, would be maybe some clarity around capital allocation. Um, you know, Berkshire has a huge amount of cash. I think it's $150 billion of cash on the balance sheet. Um, from time to time, that acts as a drag on, on returns. So um, I'm, I'm hoping there will be questions around how do you think about that amount of cash and what Buffett's thinking from a deployment standpoint looking out to the future. Good questions all. So, Nick, if you got the chance to ask Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger a question, what would you want to know? I want to know what his favorite candy from Seas Candy is. Oh, yeah, yeah. So good. <laughs> but besides that, um, I'm interested in a couple of things. Ted mentioned a, a few good ones. Um, I mean, Buffett, he's all about the underlying value of a business, the intrinsic value, and how that in the short term can deviate from a stock price, making opportunities for investors. Um, interest rates have fluctuated widely over the past couple of years, and I'm interested in if and how Buffett has made any adjustment for that and how he calculates intrinsic value, um, discounting future cash flows when the Fed funds rate is at 5% versus zero. Excuse me, there's an ambulance going by. Um, anyway, difference between 
discounting future cash flows at 5% versus a 0% Fed funds rate can have a really big impact on an estimate like that. Um, so as Ted mentioned, Buffett's got about $150 billion in cash on the balance sheet and has the choice between earning a risk-free almost 5% yield on, on uh, investing that in short-term treasury bills or finding more acquisitions to do. And lately he's mostly been enjoying the returns on the cash. Um, so I'm wondering if that's related to him reassessing estimates of intrinsic value given a higher interest rate environment. I hope you get to ask that question. It's an excellent one. So I wish I were going to Omaha with you, as, as I also said. But let's let's go to some listener questions. Um, Lee has a bunch for you, Ted. And one is, what, what sectors that are attractive in the market, see, what sectors seem to you to be overlooked that are, in fact, attractive? So um, our process tends to be pretty bottom-up, and we tend to look for businesses that have um, really great um, durable competitive advantage. Um, and that tends to lead us away from sectors that have sort of high competition or that have kind of a commodity aspect to them. And it also tends to lead us away from businesses that are binary. So for example, biotech company, you know, might be working on a really great um, product or drug to solve for disease, but those tend to be binary outcomes. And um, I guess we are more comfortable um, aiming ourselves in the direction where there's an inevitability about the long-term success um, of the business. And we talked about Visa and MasterCard, where um, they have very, very strong competitive positioning. It's going to be really hard for anybody to start and compete with them. And there's an inevitability about the growth in the economy and they they benefit from that and then as nick pointed out they get scale so uh so if i think about sectors that may be sort of forgotten about or unloved um you know i, I would say to some degree there may be niches in the industrial sector where people may be fearful of a slowdown in the economy but where there might be businesses that reside and have sort of niches that may not be quite as susceptible to a downturn in the economy. Uh, and there may be some aspect of um, sort of competitive advantage that those businesses can, uh, can leverage over time. So, um, but again, our, our focus tends to be a little more company specific and our sector weightings tend to be an outcome of our process. Not so much that we're saying, hey, energy looks really good, but healthcare doesn't look so good. Uh, we go at it more from a bottom-up standpoint. Got it. Hey, Great. Can mention, um, I'll just mention the healthcare, not, not including the, those clinical stage biotechs where it's a binary option, like, like Ted said, um, whether that's pharma companies or medical devices or insurers, I think healthcare overall actually looks pretty attractive now. Um, the sector is actually down year to date. I think there's, there's been some inf outflows rather from, from healthcare funds. Um, it's got defensive attributes, which if you think we're going into a recession, that's a good thing to have. Um, and then there, there is some longer term growth in the in the healthcare sector. Part of that is in developed markets, it's a function of people getting older and needing more medical care. And then at the same time in emerging markets, medical care getting more advanced and, and uh, boosting demand for, for drugs and healthcare services there. Um, and there's also some technological innovation going on. I think we, we all got to see a lot of that during COVID with how quickly some of the vaccines and treatments came out, but but um, 
Um, there is it's a mix of defensive and growth, and valuations have gotten a little more attractive as as the sector has declined here today. Nick, I think that's really, really, really well said. And um, I guess our thought would be to the extent we can find companies that do have defendable niches and kind of provide services into the healthcare segment, your point is really well taken. There's a strong demographic tailwind behind that. Um, I guess our, our thought is we just want to steer, steer clear from companies in healthcare that have sort of, or in any industry where there's a binary aspect to the outcome. That makes sense as well. Good dividends in a lot of healthcare stocks too. So that, that gets back to the defensive aspect in, in some of the pharma stocks. I have a for question sure. from Kenneth here. He says, for a recent retiree, is there an equity fixed income ratio that you are recommending for the next three years or so? Uh, Kenneth, great question. So if I thought about recent retiree, my next question would be sort of what's your age? Um, Cause some people retired 50, others retired 80. Um, I would ask, you know, sort of what's the level of cash flow that you need to really drive off of your, um, off of your pool of capital. And, and then I would ask whether or not you thought about, you know, do I want to, in a sense, you know, spend down on my last dime or do I think about my wealth or my capital as being multi-generational? So I think, you know, most people that, uh, you know, we work with tend to overestimate their mortality and underestimate the amount of time that they may need to live on or use the capital. And then a lot of our client base does think about wealth multi-generationally. In other words, I'm going to do my best to live on my retirement, but I'd like to leave something for subsequent generations and or philanthropy. So setting the right time horizon around the capital based on that, thinking about what return needs to be made relative to inflation so I can you know, maintain purchasing power, and then thinking about what I need to allocate to more of a cash flow uh, producing um, investment, those things all kind of go into that, um, that analysis or that consideration. So we try to stay away from hard and fast, like, well, you should be 60, 40, 40, 60. I think it's very personal. It's very uh, client specific. In general, in a low interest rate environment, we tend to encourage people to think long term, probably go for a little bit more equity exposure than they might initially feel comfortable with. But it's on the theory that if you're 60, you're probably going to live to 80 or 85. Your time horizon is still pretty long. And you want to, in a sense, have that opportunity to compound returns at you know, high single digits, as opposed to getting too short on fixed income, where you're like, well, I got a three or 4% yield here. Uh, but if inflation is running at three, you know, I'm, I'm sort of barely covering my inflation. That's a fair answer. A lot of, a lot of variables in there. So one more from Andrew, how does the debt ceiling debate play into your outlook? Um, I would put debt ceiling debate as one of those, it's a risk, but I would deem it to be a transient risk um, as opposed to a structural risk. And That's by that I mean, me, right? yeah, it, it's, it comes up, it's always, there's always angst around it. There's a lot of politics, um, but then ultimately I think cooler heads prevail and say, you know, we have to remain somewhat credible with respect to our sort of promise to repair debt. So, so I think we will get through it. That risk will then be replaced by a whole host of other risks that also will be transient. So um, I would say, you know, it's something to be watched. It is a risk. 
but I would rate it as relatively transient, relatively ephemeral, something that's not likely to really have a long lasting impact on um, asset class returns if I look out three, four, five, six, seven, eight years. That's comforting because we're doing a lot of hand wringing at the moment about it. For sure. Good to put things in perspective. So that is all the time we have today. Ted, thank you so much for joining us again on Barron's Live. And Nick, it's always a pleasure to host you as well. Thank you both. Lauren, it was really great to be here. I appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. We, we do too. Tomorrow, we invite our Barron's Live listeners to join us for a virtual Barron's Roundtable, charting the course for crypto. You can register on the Barron's Live site at barrons.com slash live. I'll be moderating a panel with Morgan McKenney, CEO of Providence Blockchain Foundation, and Professor Eshwar Prasad of Cornell, the author of the highly acclaimed book, The Future of Money. We have a wonderful program planned. I'm looking forward to it, and we would welcome your participation. Stay well, everybody, and have a good day. Apollo is working to ensure a bright, bold future, financing solutions to some of the most complex challenges the world is facing. Apollo. Investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com.